Amen. Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the Gospel according to John, to the 15th chapter where we're going to be looking together at verses 22 through 27. John 15, 22 through 27. You can find that passage on page 1061 in your pew Bibles. We are, of course, continuing our look together here at this charge made by Jesus Christ to his disciples regarding the Christian life, or life on the vine, or as we've been saying, life lived in union with Jesus Christ through faith. As I've mentioned to you now on several occasions, our day is a day when people seem to be searching for the meaningful, the fulfilling, the abundant Christian life. I want to tell you, beloved, there are many who have claimed to have recipes for success for those searching for just these kinds of things. Men like Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, Bruce Wilkerson, many more. Some of them actually quite mainstream. These men have raked in staggering profits from their individual offerings to the Church of Jesus Christ and the world on how to have success in the Christian life. Slogans like, have your best life now. Or have the purpose-driven life. Are as recognized by the world and the church alike as any other advertising slogan in the global marketplace. It seems that everyone is interested in the Christian life. Especially as a means of gaining something. Be it wealth, joy, or all-around fulfillment. In the, in the here and now. And so the, ch- the church now has this unique blend of what I would call the gospel and. The gospel of Jesus Christ as a mere means to another end other than reconciling sinful men to a just, perfectly righteous, altogether holy God. It is a picture of the Christian life that, of course, sells books by the millions. But, beloved, I hope you've come to see that it is not the picture of the Christian life that we find here in the 15th chapter of John in this very well-known vine and branches metaphor used by Jesus to illustrate and explain to his disciples the Christian life. We have seen that the biblical representation of the Christian life really does not involve our happiness or our contentment in a material sense. That happiness or that joy that Jesus is dealing with here is never the result of mere material blessings. It's not the result of wealth or health, good hair, good teeth, Armani suits, or just being surrounded by the beautiful people of this world. Rather, Jesus teaches that our joy is and will remain full in the realization that we have been united together in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by faith. 
We have union with Christ. In him we have been justified. That is, we have been declared righteous on account of Jesus' perfect righteousness being imputed to us. And in our witnessing the hand of God in our own sanctification, for our own blessed assurance, as we are continually being pushed and prodded and twisted and molded and conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in these fallen bodies, in this fallen world that we are called to live in. And I trust that as we've looked at the Christian life or life on the vine, life in union with Christ, that you have come to that place where you see that there really is a world of difference between the way of life as it is being described by Jesus Christ here and the one that seems to be taking the church by storm in our own day. One says that the people of God will trust in Jesus Christ. They will both love God and their neighbor. And they will be hated by the world on account of Christ because after all they hated him. In other words, the life that is truly abiding in Jesus Christ will be a life that bears fruit to the glory of God. And that fruit itself is always supplied by the vine. It's not something that you and I go out and strive for. We will be obedient, not because we are meriting the favor of God, but because he says that those who truly belong to him those who are fruit-bearing branches on the vine, the true vine of Jesus Christ, will be pruned and, of course, made to bear more fruit. We will keep his commands, not because of our strength, but because we have supernaturally been transformed from the status of servants into the friends of Christ. Those who belong to him find their joy in knowing that everything that is needed for fulfillment in this life is brought to us by the vine. And it will not always be pleasant in the immediate sense, but it will always lead to his glory, and ultimately it will lead to our joy being made full. It really is the antithesis of what flies off the the shelves of the so-called Christian bookstores today. Where one might learn steps to being a better you, where one would be encouraged to follow programs to increase personal righteousness and meet potential. Somehow obligate God to act in a prescribed way. Beloved, I hope you hear it. It's truly another gospel altogether. One that in the final analysis is really no gospel at all. Beloved, I hope that we as a body can agree that the Christian life is never any better illustrated than by the very Word of God itself. And when we find things contrary to the Word of God, we do not buy into the latest fads of the visible church. Rather, we cling to the Christ who has been so graciously revealed to us in the pages of the holy, infallible, and inerrant Word of God. This morning I want to close out this 15th chapter of John by looking at three things specifically in this text that's before us that I think Jesus promises here at the end of chapter 15. Three things that I think we will see 
that though two of the three are given only to the true people of God, their actual effect reaches out to the realm of every man, woman, and child under the sun in one of two ways. To one, they are the gift of life, while to another, they are the very seal of their death and ultimately of their doom. So let's look together at the Word of God this morning. I'd like you to follow along as I read John 15. Again, I'll pick up with verse 22 and read through 27. Jesus speaking says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated me and my father. But this has happened, that the word might be fulfilled, written in their law, they hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. You will also, and, will, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful again this morning that we have this time together for faith to be nourished and strengthened through the preaching of your word. We pray that you would give us clarity. We pray that your spirit would fill us. I ask, Father, that you would clear our hearts and our minds that we might give our full attention to your word. And hearing your word through the power of your spirit, we might be those who are transformed by your word for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have here in verse 22 a very good example of when we are not to take the words of Scripture in their absolute sense. Let me clarify that before you get upset. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus is not here negating everything that we know about our guilt before God. He's not somehow negating what we know about the fall of our first father Adam the Garden of Eden, and the subsequent imputation of his guilt to us. The first three chapters of Paul's epistle to the Romans make it quite clear that both Jew and Gentile alike, the entire world for that matter, is completely and entirely guilty before Almighty God. And the guilt of the world did not start at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It rather began in the garden. And so Jesus is speaking here comparatively. He is saying that all the personal sin of the Jews, though enough to condemn them before Almighty God, paled in comparison to their rejection of Him as He revealed Himself to them in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. To, re- to reject Jesus is to reject the Father. And to reject Him, as He had been revealed to us through His mighty works and miracles, through His powerful teaching, through His pointing to the fulfilled prophecy that surrounded His life, was essentially 
to leave themselves absolutely without excuse. Jesus had very clearly made himself known. People were present when they witnessed this God-man turning actual water into actual wine. You can imagine these very disciples gathered here listening to their master and what had to be running through their minds as they considered the events that they themselves had personally been eyewitnesses to. These are the very men who had marveled when they witnessed the spectacle of Jesus Christ walking on top of the sea. These are the very men who had trembled and shook and in soul-gripping fear as they watched God incarnate simply speak commands to the winds and the sea. And they witnessed firsthand the creation itself submit instantly to the very one who had with but a word brought them all into existence. You think of the people that were from his hometown in Nazareth that were present on the day when Jesus stood up, read that prophecy from Isaiah in the synagogue. Then he rolled up the scroll announcing that today, in their presence, that prophecy had been fulfilled. My point is, beloved, Jesus was not hiding. He had been revealed. That's the very first thing that Jesus points to in the closing verses of this chapter. Jesus Christ had been revealed in such a way as to leave everyone without excuse. Jesus is, of course, here referring to the glorious yet terrifying revelation of Almighty God. And when he talks about the ones who reject his his revelation, he's talking about all of those who cannot accept that Jesus Christ is of the Father. They have witnessed His supernatural works. They have listened to His claims. They have had expounded to them the proof of His being the very fulfillment of prophecy. And yet they had remained unmoved and found things that they just could not accept. They had another image of what the Messiah would be like, and so they rejected him. In fact, we're told they hated him. It leads me to make an observation here. You know, when I first started working through this passage in the last couple of weeks, I originally intended to talk to you not about three things that Jesus points out here at the closing of this chapter, but about three gifts. This would be the gift of his glorious revelation that those, these disciples, and because of them giving us their eyewitness accounts that we ourselves have, have, been, have received of this gift and are not, not left to grope about in the dark. Jesus has revealed himself. Almighty God has revealed himself to us, giving us all that is necessary for us to be completely, entirely reconciled to him. To have full satisfaction for our sin. To be fully redeemed from all the power of the devil. This is what the revelation of Jesus Christ is for his people. 
And of course, there could be no greater gift, right? However, if you were listening at the beginning of this sermon, you know that I did not call this three gifts. Rather, I mentioned three things. Why? Well, I hope that you can see here that Jesus Christ makes it very clear that what is a gift, the gift of revelation to life for one, is but the stamp and the seal of death to another. Do you see that? Beloved, revelation is a dangerous thing. To one, it is the help towards life and peace and rest. It enables us to be those who are certainly looking forward to the day when we enter the eternal glory of heaven and we worship our King in His presence. But it's also something else. The revelation of Almighty God sends one on his path toward the glory of heaven, even as it sets another firmly on the path toward the very pit of hell. Destruction. And we have to see it. To reject Jesus Christ, as he's been revealed to us in the gospel, is to reject Almighty God himself. There's no middle ground. To hate Christ is to hate the Father. And this causeless hatred of Christ by the people was yet even more fulfilling of prophecy in the life of Jesus. Jesus points them to the Psalms, in particular Psalm 35, Psalm 69, and Psalm 109, all of which talk about his being hated without cause. What did Jesus Christ done to deserve the hatred of the people? Well, of course, we know the answer is nothing. He's done absolutely nothing that should have caused him to be hated. But as he said to his disciples in this discourse, verse 25, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law, they hated me without cause. The revelation of God and his word is either a help to glory or a sentence of eternal death. Beloved, have you ever considered that? I always ask you, think think about your own life. Ask yourself this morning, what is it that you're resting in? What is it that you're taking comfort in this morning? Considering the revelation of Jesus Christ and his word, and in light of his revelation of the true church here in the 15th chapter of God, uh, chapter of John, how do you view your own life? Do you trust God? Do you trust in Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone by faith, which is the gift of Almighty God to you? Do you love? Do you love God? Do you love your neighbor? Do you love the people sitting around you this morning that God has called you to serve together in a body with? Where is your heart this morning? 
Remember, Jesus talked about the world and its hatred. Does the world hate you? Are you concerned with the glory of God or do you long for the approval of men? Jesus has revealed himself. Do you accept him as he has been presented in the word of God or do you seek to make him just a little more palatable? A little easier to take. A little bit of him and I together. A little less of him and me being diminished. Do you find yourself in our culture often apologizing for Jesus Christ and his message to the world? To reject him is to hate him. And to hate him is to hate the Father. So, of course, we we see these strong words here at the end of of, of John 15, and we, we have to think about it. We have to consider the weight. Have we thought this through? You know, beloved, we live in the land of open Bibles, right? I mean, even here in Napoleon, Ohio, this small community, there's a church on just about every corner. We live in a time and a place when the gospel, the answer to the gospel being proclaimed is a constant refrain of, oh, we know, we know, we know. We've known that for our entire lives. We're churched. Move on already. Give us some helpful instruction for the reality of life. We know who Jesus is. Give me something relevant. Beloved, my question is, do we know who we think he is? And who we think he should be? Or do we know him as he's revealed himself in the word of God? Because there's a difference. We see it all around us. Jesus does not leave it open for me to mess with at all, does he? Listen to the words of J.C. Ryle on this subject. He says this, Well would it be for all professing Christians in England if this point were more thoroughly considered. Nothing is more common than to hear men taking comfort in the thought that they know what is right. While at the same time they remain unconverted and are unfit to die. They find rest in the happy phrase of we know, we know, we know, as if knowledge could wash away their sins. They forget that the devil himself has more knowledge than any of us. And he is no better for it. Beloved, the point is this. Jesus has revealed himself. And if you are abiding in the vine, if you have been united to him by faith, That revelation is life. And if you are not, that same revelation will condemn you to eternal torment in hell. The second gift slash curse mentioned here by Jesus is the gift of the person of the Holy Spirit. We need to see that. He says in verse 26, But when the Helper comes 
whom I shall send to you by the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And again, what is an unconceivable gift to one is a curse to another. To these disciples and to the followers of Jesus Christ who truly belong to him, there is a promise here that should have filled these disciples and really should fill us, beloved, with a real uncontainable joy. Jesus Christ is leaving. The prophesied hatred of the world for him will indeed lead to his death. And you can imagine that that very thought was probably not an immediate comfort at all to these disciples. Maybe you too have asked, how is the death of Jesus? How is his physical absence from being near me physically in in this hostile world? How is that supposed to serve in comforting me? Well, beloved, it's because his death leads to his resurrection. His resurrection leads to his ascension and is serving as our advocate at the right hand of the Father where the the Bible tells us that he will be working as our advocate until we are translated from death to, to life, from now to glory. It leads to this promise of the Holy Spirit. We will not be left alone in this world. Do you believe that? We will be given the very Spirit of God Himself as our helper. This is mind-blowing stuff. We're talking about the third person of the glorious Trinity, the Spirit. The Spirit of God will open blind eyes and make them to see. He will take these weak terrified men, and not command them to stand in their weakness, but by the grace of God, he will cause them to stand in the strength of the Spirit of God himself. It's the Spirit of God that allows for flawed human beings, fallen human beings, to love when our hearts are filled with hate. It's the Spirit of God that allows us to Stand up in the face of persecution and hatred when our weak and frail and sinful bodies just want to give up. Oh, there's so much here. Not only do we have a reason for hope, knowing that the Spirit has been given to His people to strengthen us, to equip us to testify to Jesus Christ and His righteousness, But we have here a verse that gloriously reveals the unity of the Godhead. Do you see that? The Spirit is sent by the Father from the the Spirit is sent by Christ from the Father, and that the Spirit will testify of Jesus Christ. Of course, there are depths here too deep to fully understand with our finite minds. The finite cannot fully comprehend the infinite. But this is how God has revealed himself to us. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons in one unified Godhead. It's what we confess almost every Lord's Day morning in the Apostles' Creed. 
If we were to summarize the creed into three parts, we would say, along with the Heidelberg Catechism in question 24, that it deals with the Father and the work of creation, the Son and the work of our redemption, and the Holy Spirit and the work of our sanctification. Just as the presence of the Spirit in our lives is manifested through the fruit of the Spirit, which is a gift, so the absence of that fruit, the absence of the Spirit of God, becomes a curse. Beloved, we simply cannot downplay the gift that we've been given in the Spirit of God. This is how God has revealed himself in his word, and though portions of it are hazy, even shrouded in mystery at times, we know that one day, by the grace of God, everything's going to be brought into the light and the glory of heaven. I love the Belgic Confession on this. Time's not going to allow us to read the ninth article of the Belgic Confession of Faith in its entirety this morning, so I'm going to encourage you to spend some time looking at articles 9 through 11 this week in order to gain a more thorough understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity to the degree that we're able. If you need to know where to get a copy of the Belgic Confession of Faith or you're unfamiliar with the Belgic Confession of Faith, please see me after the service. I would be happy to put it into your hands. I'm only going to read just a small portion of Article 9 this morning and I hope that it brings some clarity to this glorious doctrine and why it's so critical for us to see this. After briefly discussing the way in which God has revealed himself as existing in Holy Trinity throughout the entirety of Scripture, it says this. In all these places, we are fully taught that there are three persons in one divine essence. And although this doctrine far surpasses all human understanding, nevertheless, we now believe it by the means of the Word of God, but expect hereafter to enjoy the perfect knowledge and benefit thereof in heaven. Moreover, we must observe the particular offices and operations of these three persons towards us. The Father is called our Creator by His power. The Son is our Savior and Redeemer by His blood. And the Holy Spirit is our Sanctifier by His dwelling in our hearts. Beloved, do you hear? Do you hear the promise? This is wonderful stuff, even though we know that now we see it dimly as through a glass. And though our understanding might be somewhat dim, we know that we've been given everything that we truly need in order to be fully reconciled to Almighty God, to grow in His grace as we move ever closer to glory. And it ought to move us to worship Almighty God as we consider that he has revealed himself to us in exactly this way, in Trinity. The third and final thing that Jesus points out to his disciples here in this 15th chapter is that they too will be made witnesses of him. Verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. These disciples were going to be witnesses to Jesus Christ and bear his testimony to the entire world. 
And he tells them how it is that the Spirit will work and testify of him and what that would consist of. The Spirit would not be manifested in the same way as Jesus Christ was manifested in the flesh of a man, but he would work in and through the people of God, testifying about Jesus Christ and his sufficiency to reconcile sinful people to a holy God. These disciples are here being told that they themselves would bear testimony of facts that many would not believe. That they would have to tell truths that move the natural man towards hatred and to act out of that hatred and violence towards even these very men. They would be despised. They would be the few against the many. And they would not lose heart. Because though seemingly standing alone, they were never alone in Jesus Christ. You understand? God has given you the gift of faith. He's united you to the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. He's given you the very Spirit of God to so testify to these truths. That your life is transformed. And even that serves in assuring you the truth of everything that Jesus is laying out here. These men were never alone. They were testifying about the one who had taken their hearts of stone and given them hearts of flesh. They'll spend their days bearing witness to the one who walked innocent, blameless into the agony of the cross in order to pay the penalty for those who truly deserve to be there by reason of their guilt. In closing this morning, I want to remind you of something. Jesus is talking about these disciples specifically here. But the promise is to you and I as well. We have the word of God And through these witnesses, Jesus Christ has been revealed to us as well. We have been given this very same Spirit of God that makes blind eyes to see the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and allows for us to truly embrace Him by faith that God gives. We are witnesses. We're bearing testimony to him now in our lives if we are truly abiding by the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand, beloved, we're not all ministers of the word. God calls some to be elders. He calls some to be pastors, some to be farmers, some to be teachers, doctors, bankers, truck drivers. We are to do all that we do to the glory of God because if we belong to him, by the grace of God, through the power of his spirit, we are testifying of him now. Doing what we've been called to do. Though we're not all called to be pastors or to administer word and sacrament, We've all been called, like these disciples, to testify of Jesus Christ through the gospel. We are called to be light in the darkness.
We are called to give reason for the hope that is within us. Our success in this duty will never be measured by our number of converts. It's God who changes hearts through the power of His Spirit and never men or their eloquence. We are called to tell the glorious story of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to do it knowing full well that God will save his own. And so I ask you, beloved, do you believe that? Do you believe it this morning? I want to end with this challenge to you. I want you to consider your own life. What is your life a testimony to? I don't even want to ask myself that, that question. Right? What is your life a testimony to? When you've figured that out, ask yourself this. What are you going to do about it? Understand, I'm not calling you to strive. I'm praying that Almighty God would reveal himself to us in such a way that our sin is before our face. And that we, by the grace of God, are driven again and again and again to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because, brothers and sisters in Christ, that is the only way that your life will ever be a testimony to Him. All your supposed righteousness will be as filthy rags on the great day of judgment if you are found to be clothed in anything other than the precious, perfect garment of Jesus Christ's righteousness. And so I ask you, do you know about Jesus Christ? By the powerful, wonderful, gracious Spirit of God, has He been revealed to you as he's driving you to bear witness to him and his grace and his glory. Let's pray.